Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. We're glad to have you with us. Um, If you are new with us or you haven't been with us in a while, um, you know, the Logan family, for instance, glad to have you back. Um, We as a church for the last year have been working through a book called The Story. And The Story is simply a book that takes Genesis through Revelation and puts it in a chronological narrative. It allows us to be able to engage the way God worked with his people throughout history in a pretty easy way. And so a few weeks ago, as we were kind of chugging through the story and we got to Easter, we ended up setting the story aside. If you remember, and we jumped ahead to the Gospel of Mark, well, today we're going to pick up where we left off in the story. We're going to keep chugging forward. But a couple things. As we're entering this new section of the story where we're going to begin talking about the time of the kings and the time of the prophets, you should know this is the section in the story most people are completely unfamiliar with. This is the section in the story we just, for whatever reason, we don't talk about all that often. Even if you've been in church a good long time and you've been in Bible studies or sermons or whatever, I would, I would venture to say you've probably never sat in very many good lessons on this section of Scripture. And because of that, it remains quite confusing. And there's a number of reasons for that, and I think the easiest is this. In this section, as we turn to the kings and the prophets, this is the section of Scripture that there's just a lot going on in a really short amount of space. And more than that, there's a lot of names. A lot of names to keep track of. There is going to be 40 kings 40 different kings that we're going to look at, and then a dozen or so prophets on top of that. That's 50 names. And, you know, if their names were incredibly distinct, that would be one thing. But no, their names are Ahijah and Abijah. (laughs) Or, like today, we're going to see there's Rehoboam, and then his adversary, Jeroboam. Next week, Pastor Chris is going to preach on Elijah and Elisha. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, this section is so confusing. You, get, you read it and you're like, wait, who was who? Where did this fall? It, it is hard because the names, they just kind of blur together. And they all seem to be making the same stupid decisions. <laughs> the other thing that I think makes this section really confusing is this. The book of Kings, First and Second Kings, really provides the narrative framework for the rest of the Old Testament, Okay. But throughout the kings, we have the prophets interspersed. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all those different guys, they're just kind of thrown in in the time of the kings. The problem is we don't exactly know where unless you're, you know, studying the subject. If you go and pick up Isaiah, it's kind of like, wait, when was Isaiah writing? To which kingdom was he writing? Like, when was this happening? And it's, it's confusing, There is a lot going on, and because there's a lot going on, we just kind of avoid this section. We don't talk about it. It's confusing. But here's the thing. This section, probably more than any other section in the Old Testament, allows us to enter into the world of the New Testament. What happens in the books of the kings, and especially in the books of the prophets, is what sets the framework, sets the stage for the world that Jesus is going to enter into. And so, in order to truly understand Jesus, we have to understand this time period. Because, more than that, what we're going to talk about today, what we're going to talk about today, and the split of the kingdom, that sets the stage for the rest of the prophets. 
So the reason we're going to look at what we're looking at today is because it sets the stage for the Old Testament, and the rest of the Old Testament sets the stage for Jesus. So this section is really important. And for that reason, my goal today is actually quite simple. I want to help you understand the significance of this event today. I want you to understand what happened, and I want you to understand why it happened. We're going to go through the story. I want you to know the characters. I mean, they're pretty easy. One starts with a J, one starts with an R, okay? Rehoboam, Jeroboam. We'll try and keep them separated, but I want you to see more than anything else what led to these events because it totally sets the stage from where we're going to go from here. And so to accomplish that goal, to accomplish that goal, I'm going to do three things. Three things today, very simple. I'm going to back us up a little. As it's been about three or four weeks since we've been in the story, I think we kind of need to stop and catch our breath and say, well, hold on, where, where is this coming from? Where are we at? So I'm going to back us up a little bit. And then after I kind of back us up for about 10 minutes, then we're going to get into our passage. Okay? We're going to dig in and we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 12 today. You don't have to open there yet, but you're more than welcome to. 1 Kings chapter 12. And after we go through that, I want to spend some time simply reflecting on, well, why did this happen? And how do we avoid making the same mistakes? That's what we're going to do. So I just tried to come up with a random place that I thought would be helpful for us to start. And so I was thinking, you know, I, I'm not going to cover Genesis today. I, I think we did a good job of that at Palm Sunday. I want to start in the book of Exodus, though. And if you remember, in the book of Exodus, God takes his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Remember? And he does this by his grace. I don't know if we really emphasized this all that much when we were going through that section of Scripture, but you got to go back and look. God doesn't ask a thing of his people before he rescues them. He simply does it out of his grace and out of his love and his desire for his people to thrive. And so he takes them out of Egypt, and again, with that same heart of he desires for his people to thrive, he makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And in that covenant, God promises that he will continue to protect them, continue to bless them, continue to watch over them. And if Israel follows his ways, if they heed his advice, if they listen to his law and obey it, God promises that they're going to prosper. And here's the thing. If you go and look at the law, it's really not that absurd. It's really not. Each of the laws that God gives was intended to prevent Israel from winding up in a world of hurt. Every law God gave them. Remember, just think about this. He tells them, hey, I don't want you to have a society where you go and murder each other. Okay. Uh, you can't steal whenever you want. Don't do that. Uh, the whole adultery thing, yeah, we're not going to let you sleep with each other. Okay. Basic societal norms. Like, none of these things are that absurd or out of the normal. And in fact, if we allowed a society where you were allowed to kill, you were allowed to steal, and you were allowed to sleep with whoever you want, you're looking at that and you're like, dude, that's a messed up society. That would cause so much pain and so much hardship. And so you're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense why God would say that. In the same vein, God gave a few other commandments. In the same vein, God said, I don't want you to worship any other gods. I want to be the only God that you worship. And in fact, I don't want you to worship false idols. He makes it very clear. No other gods but me. No false idols. I am the only one that you worship. The same reason that God said don't murder, don't steal, don't uh, commit adultery is the same reason he says I don't want you to worship other gods. 
Because God knows that if we break that commandment, we're going to cause pain to ourselves. And here's why. Especially in Israel's day. All the other nations, all the other cultures that surrounded Israel, the way they worshiped their gods were pretty horrific. Two big things. It was standard custom that as a way of thanking the God for your child, you offered your first child back to that God. You sacrificed your child. That was standard practice. And more than that, they also had a lot of temple prostitutes. And the way you worshipped is you went and visited with the temple prostitute. Which you can imagine, well, that's just going to be great for your family. Like this is, it was a broken and messed up society. And God's like, I don't want you to experience pain. I want you to stay away from that. And so the thing that becomes abundantly clear as we look at the law that God gave Israel, the law he promised that if Israel followed, they would thrive, it's this. Israel needs to stay away from the customs of the people that surround them. They need to stay away from that culture because as soon as they get involved in that culture, very slowly they're going to begin to adopt and adapt those practices into their own life. And as they do that, soon enough, their way of thinking and their way of living, it's going to be warped. And they're going to begin to live contrary to how God intended for them. And so as we continue to follow Israel's stories, we sign that Israel has its good days and its bad days, right? It's good seasons and bad seasons. Its good season was in the time of Joshua. In the time of Joshua, Israel is faithful to God. They're living into the promises that God said. They're trusting him. They're winning all sorts of battles and they're establishing themselves as a nation. They're kicking out all these wicked tribal groups that God said, I want you to get rid of them because they're going to influence you. They're doing that. And in the time of Joshua, they're thriving at it. The problem becomes, and you know this, is when Joshua dies, Israel gets lazy. And when Israel gets lazy, we realize that when things are good, and this becomes a major theme for them, when things are good, they forget God. Get the image of this is Israel, things are good. They've conquered everybody. They're thriving right now. And so they're just kicking back on their lounger. And like David, they're just perusing what's around them. And they begin to say, oh, look what that culture's doing. That sounds interesting. Oh, look what that guy's. Oh, that is some brilliant wisdom from that culture. And they just slowly begin to adopt the practices of the cultures around them. And soon enough, they begin to adopt the gods of the cultures around them. And more than that, as they begin to adopt the gods of the culture around them, they begin to demand to be like the other cultures around them. And in fact, they do so at one point when they say, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a real king, which has to hurt. We want a human, somebody we can look to, somebody we can follow, somebody we know. We want to see a king. They just want to be like everybody else. So God says, okay, fine, I'll give you a king. And who's the first king? Anybody remember? Saul. Saul. And here's the truth. Saul starts out all right. He starts out okay. He rallies Israel. They become a united front and he allows them to kind of begin to march and start conquering territory, start kicking out these wicked parties that had been influencing Israel over the years. Saul starts out well. Saul's big downfall is by, as Saul continued to increase, he started to realize as he started to destroy these nation groups, he's like, well, they got some good stuff. What if I just keep a little for myself? That was a bad idea. And that brings about Saul's downfall. Then you have a new king. God raises up a new king, a guy named David. And for all intents and purposes, David is the man, 
right? David did things right. David expanded the kingdom to its highest limits. If you look, some of your Bibles have maps in the very back of them. If you look at the territory that Saul conquered versus the territory that David conquered, David was on a tear. I mean, he made Israel what it was at that time. I mean, he made Israel a great power. But more than that, David turned the entire community of Israel to be God-fearing people. They got rid of the idols. They didn't worship that. David centered them on God again. David did things right. And in fact, I think David's greatest legacy is he left Solomon to be able to take Israel to even greater heights than he was able to do it. And so by the time we get to Solomon, we see Solomon is just crushing it in the beginning. Solomon, we're told in the book of Kings, has everything his heart could desire. He was the envy of the world. People from all over the world would come just to marvel at Solomon's kingdom. Solomon, in fact, through conquering and through treaties, ends up expanding Israel to its largest borders ever, ever. I mean, things are great. In fact, Solomon, it turns out, was so wealthy. He had so much gold, he didn't even know what to do with it. So you know what he did? He just started melting it down and slapping it on the walls. He started melting it down. He's like, look at my shield. You want a shield? Here, I'll give you shields. He had so much, he didn't know what else to do with it. So he just started handing it out to people. Solomon starts out strong. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there was nothing his heart desired that he did not have. He had wisdom, he had wealth, he had power, he had prestige, and he had pleasure. Everything a heart could desire, Solomon had. And while Solomon starts out real strong, we saw a few weeks ago, Solomon has a bit of a midlife crisis. And in his midlife crisis, he becomes what we would call a megalomaniac. He becomes very self-obsessed. He has these building projects that he wants to undertake from the temple to a bunch of other things, but in order to accomplish them, he needs money. So he ends up taxing his people pretty heavily to do this, which, you know, that's fine, I guess. At least they see something from it. But the thing that was really bad is in order to get a workforce, he ends up drafting his people to work for them. He conscripts them. He forces them into labor. Well, that's not a good idea. But the thing that really brought Solomon down, and you know this, is all the women in his life. Solomon had a thing for the women, had a thing for the ladies. He ended up marrying over 700 women and had 300 concubines. Every time I talk about this with students, their question every single time is, how did he know their names? <laughs> it's a good question. I wonder about, like, how do he deal with that many mother-in-laws? Um, but... Mine's not here, right? No. <laughs> She's probably watching this. I was joking. Um, the point is, Solomon, in having all these wisdom, or excuse me, all these women, he ends up becoming corrupted by them. And how? By having these women close, and they're from foreign nations, he begins to observe the foreign nations' cultures. He sees what they did. He sees what they engaged in, their practices, and over time, he begins to adopt them as his own. Are you seeing a pattern? Consistently, Israel has this infatuation with other cultures. And as they slowly begin to embrace them, over time, their minds, their way of thinking, and their actions become warped. And they end up living completely contrary to what God intended for them. 
These issues that Solomon faced, Solomon learns a very important lesson. He learns that sin always has consequences, and it's those consequences that set up our story today. Towards the end of his life, Solomon's visited by a prophet, and the prophet tells him that because he has turned his back on God, he is going to have his kingdom stripped from him. Everything he's worked for, everything he's tried to build up for greatness, it's going to be stripped out of his son's hand. He's going to lose it all. And in fact, he's told that his kingdom will fall to one of his officials, a guy named Jeroboam. Well, when Solomon finds out about this, obviously he's not too happy, so he tries to hunt down Jeroboam and kill him. Jeroboam flees to Egypt, and that's where our story picks up. Jeroboam lives in Egypt until Solomon dies, and that's what happens at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 12. So I invite you, open up with me today to 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, It is on page 240 in your pew Bibles, 240, but if you have your Bible app, you can pull it up that way too. 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm only going to read the first 10 verses, and as I go, I'm going to kind of read a verse at a time. I'm not going to take the whole chunk. Uh, I want you to kind of see and explain as we go. But it's with that background in mind, Solomon has begun to embrace these other customs, and his son has watched this. All right. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. What we find out is this, that among Solomon's hundreds of kids, somehow Rehoboam had been elected to be Solomon's predecessor. Predecessor? Successor. Successor. Thanks, everybody. Group effort, guys. Group effort. Solomon, Rehoboam became his successor. But I guess in this culture, in order for him to be truly coronated, he had to go to this place, Shechem, where the rest of the tribes pledged allegiance to him. Well, apparently before the tribes were willing to allow uh, Rehoboam to be their king, they had some demands. And that's what we're going to read about next. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, this being that Solomon had died, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Jeroboam then returned from Egypt, so they, meaning the people of Israel, sent for Jeroboam, and he, along with the whole assembly of Israel, went to Rehoboam and said, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Basically, when Jeroboam comes back, the people hear, hey, Jeroboam is back. And remember, he was a top official. And so because he was a top official, they say, we we want you to be our spokesman. Will you go to Solomon and speak on our behalf? And again, because he was an official, he knew full well what the problems facing Israel were. And if you're thinking, well, hold on, what were the problems again? Remember I told you, Solomon in his midlife crisis became a megalomaniac. He taxed his people pretty crazy, and he forced them into slave labor. Not a good strategy. So the people come to him and they go, hey, can you just lighten the load a little bit? Rehoboam answered, "Um, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people did. They, They went. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who served his father during his lifetime. Like, here's the thing. This seems like a good move, right? He's a young king. He doesn't have a lot of experience, and he doesn't want to make a rash decision. So he says, give me a few days, and I'll come back to you. And the people are like, yeah, that's, that seems reasonable. And then he even makes a good decision. He goes to his father's helpers, these elder statesmen, these men who served alongside his father for years. They have tons of political experience. They saw the good things his dad did. They saw the bad things. They're set up to give good advice, and they do. Solomon, or Rehoboam asked them, 
uh, how, how would you advise me to answer these people? And the wise elders responded, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, then they will always be your servants. Their, their wise advice was this, be humble. Be a humble servant leader. Don't be arrogant. Don't be domineering. Don't be a megalomaniac. Care for the people. That's good advice. Look, like, that's the thing. That is brilliant wisdom, right? We all want leaders like that. That's good advice. But Rehoboam was an idiot. <laughs> he rejected the advice the elders gave him, and instead he consulted the young men. In Hebrew, that phrase is young boys. The boys, he consulted his boys who had grown up with him and who were serving him. Now, I don't know if you ever think about this, but I had friends in high school, middle school. I don't want to go to them for advice <laughs> when they were in middle school and high school, right? Like, I love middle school and high school students. I'm not going to go to you for life advice, <laughs> let alone how to run a country. Apparently, what Solomon had in abundance in terms of wisdom, Rehoboam made up for in stupidity. But he asked them, you know, what is your advice? How should I answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? And then his boys who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our, our yoke lighter. Now this is what you're going to tell them. And guys, get ready. These are fighting words. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. <laughs> they get like, that's the best you got? <laughs> like, that's, that's your insult? Like, all right, you got some issues. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, but I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. Yeah, well, I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. In other words, the advice they give him is very simple. Instead of being a humble servant leader, you need to assert your dominance. You need to make it known you're the man and nobody messes with the man. You don't give me advice. I tell you what to do. And I'm the man. This is the stupidest advice anybody could ever give. And you look at this and you're like, he's going to automatically reject this, right? Nope. He's an idiot, remember? And so, in his brilliance, Rehoboam goes back to the people and he goes, hey, uh, yeah, so I've decided my pinky, thicker than my dad's waist. My dad, you know, he was bad. He, he scourged you with scorpions. Yeah, that must have hurt. Or he scourged you with whips. I'm going to use scorpions. I'm the man. The people weren't too thrilled about this. Verse 20 is the consequences. You got it. Verse 20, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and they made him king over all Israel. And at this time, only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. <laughs> this, is, this is bad. The consequences for Solomon's uh, faithlessness, the consequences for Rehoboam's stupidity, it's that the kingdom of Israel is torn in half. And we're on the brink of all-out civil war. In fact, Rehoboam, in the next section, he marshals an army of 185,000 people to march on the north and bring them into submission. Israel is on the brink of war. Thankfully, a prophet comes and talks them down, and they just settle. And from this point forward in the Bible, Israel is two. They're separated. You have a northern kingdom, and you have a southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom, because it contained the bulk of the tribes, it was just referred to generically as Israel. And from this point forward, it's going to be called Israel. And when we say Israel, we mean the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And I say this because as you read the prophets or as you're reading into the kings, you're going to find that they're either going to address their remarks to Israel, the northern kingdom, or they're going to talk to Judah. Okay? And this is the time period they're addressing, and that's the group they're addressing. They are, for all intents and purposes, two separate nations at this point. As you continue to read in the kings, you're going to find, and we'll see over the next few weeks, that Judah actually had some decent kings. There were some wise kings who were trying to follow the Lord, who were trying to do what God told them to do at Mount Sinai. They were trying to be faithful, trying to turn Israel around or Judah around, but it didn't really work. In the north, there was no good kings. From the very beginning, as soon as Jeroboam takes over, Israel begins a downward spiral that they never recover from, and it goes quick. The first political decision Jeroboam makes is this. He realizes that the people are going to be afraid of coming down, or the people are going to be afraid. Uh, uh, that's not it. He is afraid that when the people return to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they're going to realize things under Rehoboam aren't that bad. And they're going to realize that things aren't that bad, and they're going to turn on him. So Jeroboam makes a good political move. Good political move. He sets up his own two temples, his own two places for Israel to worship. So they don't have to, you know, bother to go all the way down to the southern kingdom. And in these temples that he sets up, you want to know what he erects? Two giant golden cows. Why golden cows? Because it worked so well the last few times, right? Everybody knows when it comes to Israel, you want golden cows. We talk about this with my students um, in our Bible class. We were just covering this, and we always wonder, like, why cows? If we were going to create a God, I don't think we'd have a giant cow that just sits there and moves. Like, it's not a big threat. It's not that intimidating. Like, why a cow? If it was up to us, we'd choose, like, a giant chicken thing with talons and wings and beaks. Like, that's an intimidating God. A cow? Why a cow? There's actually a good reason for this. I was curious. I looked it up. Do you remember where Jeroboam fled when Solomon was trying to kill him? Egypt. In Egypt, there is a god named Apis. Apis was the god of the Nile, a pretty major god in the Egyptian pantheon. Apis is always depicted as a bull. Always depicted as a bull. Well, when Jeroboam was down there, he likely became um, infatuated with their culture again. He took their ideas and began to worship their gods. But more than that, Jeroboam is up in the north. The tribes or the nations, the cultures that surround Israel in the north, they worship a god called Baal. Baal, Baal, however you want to pronounce it, B-A-A-L. And we're going to hear a lot about him the next few weeks. Well, Baal is always depicted as a standing person or bull, but he always has horns. In other words, Baal is always depicted as a cow as well. And so what Jeroboam does is he looks around at the other cultures and he says, well, what are everybody else doing? And he begins to adopt their practices and bring them into Israel. And in fact, he even says with all arrogance, behold, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He takes their culture 
And you're thinking, well, the South isn't that stupid. Yeah, they are. We're told in chapter 14 that Rehoboam did the exact same thing. He looked around at all the other cultures and he took their despicable practices and he applied them to his people as well. Again, we see Israel looking around and trying to take from the other cultures around them. Well, this just triggers all sorts of consequences because God wants to get their attention and turn them back. And so what happens is in the north, God sends all sorts of judgment on Jeroboam's house. He tries to turn them around and in trying to turn them around, uh, or he tries to turn them around. And in the south, he allows Egypt to come in and conquer Judah uh, or at least strip the temple bare of all of its money. Both are incredibly humbling. And you would think these judgments should get Israel's attention. They were intended to show them, hey guys, you're going the wrong way. You got to fix this. You got to divert. You got to change directions. You got to repent. But neither of them do. And as we're going to see over the next few weeks, that's what the prophets talk about. They're constantly trying to get Israel's attention and say, guys, you're going the wrong way. This is not good. Stop. Ultimately, it's going to lead to the complete downfall of the nations. The biggest problem in Israel's history, and especially with Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, is this. They were infatuated with the cultures around them. They saw some sort of perceived wisdom or power in the ways of the world around them. And it leads to this incredibly miserable decline. I mean, and you look at these people and you wonder, like, what is wrong with you? How stupid do you have to be? Like golden cows, like seriously, how many times do we have to have golden cows to realize this was a bad idea? And you realize, what, what, what did these other cultures offer that God didn't already offer them? All they had to do was look back in their history and see what God had done for them. How could they forget what God had done for them? How could they be so blind to the fact that as they began to absorb these other cultures, in fact, their minds were beginning to be warped. Their hearts were beginning to change. The way they lived was beginning to be completely contrary to what God intended for them. How were they so blind? How were they so stupid? Last night, I was reminded of something Jesus said as I was reflecting on these questions. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to point out the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the giant log sticking out of your own eye. In other words, Jesus' words are this, it's always easy to point out the flaws in somebody else's life. It's hard to admit the junk going wrong in our own life. And so with that word of wisdom in mind, I turn these questions on myself. I look and see how Israel fell, how they gave in to other cultures, and I wonder, do I do that? Is the way I think, the way I act, has that been shaped by my culture? So I went to a number of different things. I started with politics because, you know, that's always a great topic for church. <laughs> I think the truth is, all of us have to admit, our politics absolutely shape the way we live. Our politics absolutely shape the way we talk, where we give our money, but more than that, how we read the Bible. And I know that because just in this room alone, we have right, we have left, we have, I don't know, mixed, made up positions, and north, south, east, west positions, wherever you want. Everybody's got a different political position, right? And you are fully convinced that the Bible supports your ideas. I think we have to admit, culture does influence us. 
And I went to the issue of money because, again, politics and money, where can you go wrong in church? <laughs> the way we spend money, the way we save money. I mean, for a long time, how many times have we talked as Americans about this mentality of we have to keep up with the Joneses? Right? We have to have what everybody else has. We've got to have the bank accounts. We've got to have the house. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. I think it's surprising when we look at the way other people, other cultures view us, and they see the amount of wealth, the amount of abundance we have, and how stingy we are. It always shocks me. And then I see on the news these families that are starving, and they're bringing people into their house and sharing what they have. And I'm like, yeah, I don't do that. And I have abundance. I think if I'm honest, culture has shaped the way that I think. But I'm going to push it even more because, yeah, why not? Um, as Chris said, we're, we're pregnant and couldn't be more excited about it. Um, and because I'm me, um, I plan by the time the baby arrives, September 1st, um, to have the whole parenting thing completely figured out. Um, <laughs> So if you have any questions, give me about four months, and then I'll be your guru. So I've been reading blogs, I've been looking at books, I've been doing different things, and the one, there's probably two things that have really stuck out to me as I've looked at all this parenting advice out there. One, nobody agrees with each other. There is so much contradictory stuff out there, it's incredible. But the second thing that sticks out to me is a lot of the advice out there is so contrary to the Bible. So contrary to the wisdom of God. Let me give you a couple examples. A couple examples. Um, there are parents who, all well-meaning, for the, desiring the very best for their children, end up putting their children in every program under the sun. You got swim lessons, gymnastics, science camp, baseball practice, whatever. And from the moment these kids get out of school, they're running from one thing to the next to the next, only to squeeze in homework and then pass out and fall asleep the next day. And then on Saturday, you've got this competition and this meet and this event and this and this and this. And these kids, they just have no space in their life. That seems to fly right in the face of the Ten Commandments. God says that every single person is to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Every single person is, needs a day off, a day of rest, a day of unstructured, like, fun to recover, to rejuvenate, to be with him. But I mean this. I think parents with all good intentions in mind desire to give their kids the very best life. They want them to have incredible experiences that we think that in order to do that, we've got to put them in every single program. The Bible doesn't say that. That's an influence of our culture. Let me give you another one, because we have a lot of high school students in here today. I've worked with high school students for a number of years, and the thing that continues to shock me is how many of them stay up till midnight or 2 a.m. doing homework, only to wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning to run off to practice. These kids operating off four or five hours of sleep a night, it's just not healthy. Why do they do this? Where do they get this idea that that's what they need to do? From us. From our culture. Because we've told that, that in order to succeed, in order to get into a good college, in order to have a successful job, in order to provide for your family, in order to have the American dream, you have to do this. That's not what God says. And we look at our children and we see them burning out and we wonder why. 
Guys, we have allowed culture to shape and influence the way we think and live. We're not that different from Israel. Last, last little example. Um, last week, as you know, Easter, as a church, we had five services last week. Like, well, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Four days of church. Math is hard, okay? Four days of church. That's a lot of church. And I was at all the services. You would think, after spending a week of intentionally focusing on who Jesus is, what Jesus did for us, that would have shaped my week. I have to confess, less than a week later, I had already jumped back into the normalcy of life. You know, Chris bailed on me, so I had to do some stuff here. <laughs> I had to get caught up on work. I had to get ahead on some things. Life got busy. And if you don't think this is part of our culture, anybody go to Target this week? I went to Target mainly because Melissa and I are addicted to Target. I went this past weekend and then, you know, again on Monday because I got to get my fix. Um, Saturday, Sunday, that, there was like seven aisles full of Easter stuff. 24 hours later, strip bare. <laughs> it was summer all the time. It's like Easter never happened except for this dollar discount bin in the section. Right? There's a tiny little corner of a reminder that Easter happened. Everything else, though, has already changed and moved on. It's like it never happened. <sighs> Guys, I think we have to admit we're a lot like Israel. We allow our culture to slowly shape and change the way we think and the way we act. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't live as God intended. This is a hard truth. This is a hard truth, and it's one that we need to face. A lot of times when we come to the scriptures, we're reminded of these truths. They, the scripture kind of serves as a mirror to point out a lot of the flaws, and we don't really like to sit in that. And before I resolve it, we need to sit in that. We need to recognize that we're just as bad. But the greater truth is this, and it's significant that we forget Easter so quickly, but the greater truth of Easter is this, that what Jesus accomplished last week in dying from the cross, in raising from the tomb, it makes it very clear that church, we do not live without hope. We live in a world where Jesus died for these exact same things so that you and I have a different way to live, so that you and I can experience not the outcome that Israel is going to experience, but that you and I can experience a different reality. You and I can experience the life that God intended for each of us to live, the life that he died for, and the life that he, in raising from the dead, secures for every single one of us. That's what this passage reminds me of. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And as we are confronted with your word, we cannot help but acknowledge we, like Israel, are often sheep who go astray. God, just in this, this brief time as we reflect on, on your son's words about the log in our own eye, 
and we look at the way culture has influenced us, God, just in these small areas, politics, money, parenting, holidays, Lord, we have to confess we have turned from you. Spirit, I pray that you would come into our lives, into our hearts. God, make it clear to us where we are not thinking or acting in ways, Lord, that you intended for us. Make it clear to us the ways that we're living in contradiction to what you intended for us, in contradiction to the life you intended. God, we don't know. But I pray that you, by your Spirit, would reveal that to us in our hearts. And God, as we continue to sit before you, as we listen to your word, as we talk to our brothers and sisters, we talk to our spouses on the way home, God, may you make it clear how we can change our way of thinking. Lord, that we would be shaped and transfixed by your Spirit and by your word rather than our culture. Lord, we desire truth. But the truth is... We like the short-term stimulants that the world could give us. Father, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would not only reveal that to us, but lead us into life everlasting. Lord, allow us to experience the life that you died for, the life that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ, today. In Jesus' name, amen.